Happy New Year to everyone out there. I hope for all of you, 2021 has started off on the right track. I certainly hope that uh, this new year will be much better for many of you compared to what we have um, experienced from 2020. Now, I will admit that, yes, for us as individuals, maybe there were some good things about 2020. I also know that many of us in the world um, endured a lot of um, hardships, especially with uh, coronavirus. I can't imagine just how many people out there sadly lost someone to this um, unfortunate um, circumstance. I don't even know if unfortunate circumstance alone uh, can best describe um, the sorrow and suffering that so many people went through who either contracted and recovered or sadly lost a loved one. My wife and I are very thankful that we um, did not um, contract coronavirus. However, we still have to be very vigilant uh, with what is out there. Um, we are obviously playing by the rules and wearing a mask and keeping our um, distance uh, six feet apart, which is a, a good thing to do, obviously. Um, but, you know, uh, one thing I have learned is that um, the worst thing any of us can do is live in fear um, to the point where we can't enjoy life even in times of uh, hardship. And I'm very thankful that uh, my wife and I did get to go on a, a nice vacation trip uh, last summer up to uh, New York State's uh, Thousand Islands region. I wasn't sure even at one point if we were even going to make the trip, but I'm very thankful we got to go when we did. So I certainly hope that for all of you, wherever you are in the world, um, we'll have a better 2021 and we'll be able to do some things that perhaps you all did not get to do uh, from a year ago. But I'm glad to be back on the air tonight because we are going to be uh, discussing a new um, book that I read uh, three years ago. And I'm sure many of you all are familiar with what canals are. Oftentimes when I think of canals, I tend to think of the Panama Canal or the Suez Canal. But there was one canal in particular that uh, laid the cornerstone for um, for 19th century commercialization. And what I mean by commercialization is um, not everything being commercialized, but how uh, commerce itself was able to be connected not just by the Atlantic Ocean, but by connecting the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes. That canal is none other than the Erie Canal. So we're going to be in this uh, new season, being season eight. Hard to believe um, we've been through seven seasons of of uh, learning about a variety of different um, subjects. But hey, the best part about podcasting is that um, just when you think you've learned everything about something, there's something new to learn about when it comes to a new, a new season and a new subject. So we're going to be discussing... Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the Making of a Great Nation by Peter L. Bernstein. Now, as a matter of fact, this book was written at least 15 years ago, but I read it um, three years ago, and it was an, uh, an incredibly well-written book behind um, not just the canal, or let alone the Erie Canal itself, but how it became one of the um, premier engineering marvels of the world, not only for the time in which it was built, but over time, how historians still 
marvel at um, at what it took to build the Erie Canal, and even though it may not be used for uh, transporting goods like it was throughout the majority of the 19th and into the early 20th century, in today's time, uh, the Erie Canal is used for recreational purposes. However, uh, you could still visit uh, numerous various sections of the Erie Canal throughout New York State, and can get not only a recreational boat ride, but a um, a boat ride for historical purposes. So, I guess many of y'all are wondering, um, Kirk, have you seen the Erie Canal before? Yes, I have. As a matter of fact, my wife and I have seen uh, parts of the Erie Canal on two occasions. Uh, three years ago, we were in the Finger Lakes in New York State. We got to see parts of the Erie Canal through uh, Seneca Falls. And then when we, when we went to... Um, I take it back, we were in the Finger Lakes uh, four years ago, uh, April of 2017, but uh, three years ago, in April of 2018, we were in Niagara Falls, and we did get to see portions of the Erie Canal around uh, Buffalo and uh, the greater Niagara area. So the Erie Canal, I can tell you this much, folks, is about 363 miles long. And I'll tell you some more about... Um, about the mileage of the canal, if not in this podcast, but in another upcoming podcast. So, you know, one thing I should point out in our lead-off question is that when we think of um, global commerce, it's very easy to assume that global commerce is something that only derived from the 21st century, or let alone even from the 20th century, especially... Um, around the time, I should say, in 1898, when the Spanish-American War begins and when the United States emerges from that war, that's when we finally become a world superpower. Up until the Spanish-American War, the U.S. was really a second-tier um, or a second-world power. But in terms of uh, becoming a, a world industrial power, in the aftermath of that Spanish-American War, that's when we really emerge. And that's when globalization really goes to a higher level. Now, I will admit that before the 19th century or before the Spanish-American War, the United States had wanted to become a superpower in terms of uh, global commerce. And in order to achieve being a superpower, maybe not an elite superpower, but going from lower-tier status, say, to middle-tier in terms of uh, global commerce, you have to have more than just an ocean. In other words, you've got to have more than just sending boats to and from the Atlantic Ocean to either ship out goods or bring goods in. Remember, export going out, import coming in. So, what we need to have is an internal system that once goods come in from the Atlantic Ocean, say, to uh, New York City, for example, the New York City Harbor, there's got to be a way to get them um, via by water into, say, New York State, and then perhaps further west into the uh, reaches of present-day Ohio and Michigan. What do you think that's going to take? The answer is very simple, a canal, a canal that will link the Atlantic Ocean through the Hudson River 
into the Great Lakes. So, our leadoff question of wedding of the waters, the Erie Canal, and the making of a great nation is going to be the following. Prior to present-day 21st century global commerce networking, did Americans from generations before envision building a waterway system linking Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes? Yes. How far back, I guess is the bigger question, how far back? Well, prior to 1775, and of course we all know what 1775 was, the shots heard around the world at the battles of Lexington and Concord, American Revolution, but prior to 1775, or, or even alone, or let alone prior to the, to the time that led to our declaring our separation from England, we can look at figures like George Washington. Why is George Washington important in terms of uh, canals? Well, George Washington became deeply concerned about land territory west of the Appalachians, given that England was already in possession of the territory. And how did that happen, folks? Well, French and Indian War. The British emerged victorious, Around 1763, the war comes to an end. The French have all have a good chunk of uh, land owner land possession, or I should say ownership of land, rather, west of the Appalachians. Well, the British defeat the French. The French have to cede all that land to the British. And it's not so much that the French have to cede the land to the British. A promise gets broken. You know, the British were looking after her 13 subjects during the uh, French and Indian War. Of course, many um, people, or let alone, I should say, many of Britain's uh, subjects within the 13 colonies took up arms with her in fighting against the French and the Indians. Most notably, a fellow named George Washington, who had fought at, uh, at, like, at the battles of... Um, at battles of uh, Fort Pitt and uh, Fort Necessity, Fort Duquesne. Matter of fact, it was Washington who uh, helped um, the English um, army once they had been under attack by French and Indian forces at um, at the wilderness or around the Monongahela area. And of course, uh, General Braddock lost his life. But Washington, long story short, had owned had had vast, um, owned vast amounts of land in what we now know as present-day Ohio and present-day western Pennsylvania. I don't know if some of that land may have belonged to Martha, given that she was the wealthiest woman in Virginia when he um, married her, but I do know that Washington owned land in present-day western Pennsylvania and in parts of Ohio. And of course, the British are, are telling the, uh, her subjects that, hey, if we win the war we could see to it that some of you, or, or whatever number we allow, can move westward beyond the Appalachians. Well, the proclamation of 1763 changes all of that. The British uh, basically go behind her subjects' uh, backs, being the colonies, and basically draw a proclamation line forbidding any westward expansion beyond the Appalachians. So, George Washington is very concerned, not just so much that England is already in possession of the territory west of the Appalachians, 
and has prohibited her, sub, her colonial subjects from expanding further west, Washington himself truly does believe that America itself would remain as a lower-tier nation without any fundamental commercial navigational system. So, in other words, for George Washington, he really does believe that the only way, that one of the ways America can be a better country, and this is before even the thought of going to war, there has to be some kind of waterway that linking the ocean to the rivers to Great Lakes, so that goods can reach the furthest western points without having to uh, rely on um, old traditional methods of transportation, which I will be discussing here shortly. In the years after the American Revolution was fought, then we have to think about not only after the war ended, you know, we've then we get into framing a U.S. Constitution in Philadelphia to establishing our government, which is a three-tier uh, level, legislative, executive, judiciary branches. After all that's been established, and of course that was no picnic, but after framing the, con the U.S. Constitution to establishing a government, the discussion regarding canals would once again resume, which was a good thing. But the, the ironic thing I ought to point out is this. In the early years of our democracy's existence, let's take a guess as to how many uh, people, or let alone the greater population, the greater American population, what percentage of that population lived on farms? I'll give you a hint right now, folks. It's between 80 and 95%. The answer is 90 so, just over 90% of the American population in the early years of our democracy's existence l reside on farms. Is it fair to say that the idea, or let alone the thought, behind constructing a large waterway linking east to west was seen as very foreign, or let alone obsolete, to many in our uh, young nation's existence, especially the political opponents who viewed the Erie Canal project as being fiscally wasteful to altering people's livelihoods whose previous ways of life would never be the same. Oh, I, I could see how there were a lot of people um, who could have been very skeptical of this project because, you know, it's one thing to propose a waterway linking east to west. How much money is, gonna, is it going to cost? Who's going to foot the bill? Are the taxpayers going to foot it? Um, who's to say that, um, you know, okay, Erie Canal folks, you know, this is going through New York State, and then it would be venturing into western states at the time, like Ohio, Michigan, Indiana. Who's to say if you reside in Virginia that you're going to support the idea of a canal that's not going to even be involved in your state? So there's a lot of politics, obviously, involved in the political piece of the whole um, debate behind whether or not this canal should be constructed will be widely discussed um, in other podcast sessions um, per this um, book. So, you know, think of this, of this too, folks. The idea of 
of uh, constructing a large waterway linking east to west and knowing that how foreign of an idea it was was kind of like the same thing as putting a man on the moon. You know, at one time, um, I'm sure there were people who thought sending, a, sending astronauts or sending people to space was out of this world ridiculous, but it did happen. Another question I should uh, ask you all is the following. Prior to 1817, which is the year that the Erie Canal broke ground, how many years had been spent surveying or studying, let alone New York State's geography? 25 years. And you also have to remember, too, this, folks. We don't have any environmental groups at this time who could be um, in opposition to the project. But I think it's smart to know that it's taking, that they're not just rushing into something, but they have spent a quarter of a century surveying and studying the geography and, and trying to figure out, okay, where do we um, begin constructing this canal? How long is it going to be? What, how wide will it be? What is its depth? What kind of boats are going to be able to uh, maneuver along this canal? And if so, how big can the boats be? What, what, what goods are the boats going to be transporting? And perhaps can the boats be transporting people? That's something to think about right there. So our, here's our first lead-off bonus question. For visionaries, let alone supporters, behind making the Erie Canal a reality, there were many factors at stake, but if I could pick one for this introduction of this book we're going to be discussing, what was one factor that was at stake? If I could pick one, what would it be? The presence of Western territories, especially... In the aftermath of the American Revolution, those Western territories were what we would refer to as the Northwest Territory, being present-day Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, and Wisconsin. What do all five of those states have in common, folks? Water. Not just water, but they are surrounded by bodies of water being the Great Lakes. Now, there are three other states or rather, I should say, two other states that are surrounded by Great Lakes, or three other states, I should say, yes. New York, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. Of course, Minnesota's not even in the picture right now. But remember, folks, in today's time, we have eight states that are surrounded by bodies of Great Lakes water. New York with Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. Pennsylvania with Lake Erie. Ohio, Lake Erie. Michigan, which is, believe it or not, surrounded by four of the Great Lakes, Huron, Erie, Superior, and Michigan. And what do you know? Michigan is the only one of the five Great Lakes that does not touch uh, Canada. So this Northwest Territory, which was established in 1787, as I said earlier, being comprised of Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, and Wisconsin, all five of these states are surrounded by Great Lakes water bodies, do, would all five of these future states be impacted by the presence of an Erie Canal for all the right reasons? 
Absolutely. So here's an easy answer, but it's one that we must um, not take for granted or even um, forget. Had the Erie Canal not been built, the Northwest Territory, as we know, might not have uh, been in possession, or let alone been in the possession of the United States government. For all we know, the, the Northwest Territory, um, we, we have to remember that Indian tribes are still living in the Northwest Territory, and they are in the thousands. We're not talking 10,000, we're talking perhaps about 40,000 or more at best. So, this territory that is surrounded by the Great Lakes waters, to us, this is really a matter of national security. There were a lot of things, though, I will tell you, after the American Revolution that really did become a matter of national security in, in securing our nation's uh, future. And thank heavens that we were able to establish a government that's still in existence today. That's one of them, because if, if the United States Constitution had not been established, I'm not sure that, um, that whatever could have been in its place may have been any more effective than what we have today. Now, another question in this introduction is the following. We're going to be learning about, throughout the book, we're going to be learning about those who supported the Erie Canal in terms of building it, and we're going to learn about those who were against it. But from what, I, from what I've read and garnered in reviewing uh, what was necessary to, uh, to uh, share with you all in this introduction, it seems like there were more people in support of the canal, which was a good thing. There's nothing wrong with having those against it. But if you have more people in opposition, then a project simply becomes defeated. So, who are some of the people that um, were in support in, of uh, building the Erie Canal? Well, our leadoff person, and we're going to learn a great deal about him, is DeWitt Clinton. He was a 10-term mayor of New York City and a three-term governor of New York. As a matter of fact, there is a um, town, or let alone a city, right on the outskirts of Syracuse, uh, New York. The name is DeWitt, New York named after DeWitt Clinton. Matter of fact, my wife and I, when we were coming home from the Thousand Islands, uh, we uh, drove past um, signs for Syracuse. Of course, we saw downtown Syracuse um, from a distance, but we did pass a marker for DeWitt, and I knew right away, named after DeWitt Clinton. And there is a county in New York State uh, in the uh, northern part, um, in the Adirondack area, known as Clinton County, which is more than likely named after the Clinton family. And a matter of fact, uh, Clinton County is where uh, Lake Champlain is, in case you all are want, wondering um, for unique uh, geographical um, features, or hot spots for that matter. But yes, DeWitt Clinton is going to be one of the big um, advocates, or let alone proponents, behind constructing the canal. George Washington is another figure. Of course, Washington um, had passed away at least a good 20 years before the canal was built, but Washington in his day, as I said earlier, firmly believed that if a canal system did not get built, that America would be a lower, probably perhaps the lowest tier nation. And he may have been right about that. Then we have a fellow named Governor Morris, Elkanah Watson, to U.S. Treasury Secretary Albert Gallatin, 
Peter Porter to Martin Van Buren, who would become a future president of the United States, and a fellow named Robert Fulton, uh, who um, came up with the Fulton Steamships. And there is a county in New York State named in his honor, Fulton County. Now, who are some figures that will oppose the Erie Canal? One of them happens to be a Virginian, not just no ordinary Virginian. It turns out that the uh, man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, being Thomas Jefferson, would become a figure who opposed um, the document, who opposed the uh, construction of the canal, to a, another uh, New Yorker named uh, Daniel Tompkins, who um, would oppose uh, who would oppose uh, the construction of the canal. As a matter of fact, I should point out to you all that there is a county in New York State in the Finger Lakes region known as Tompkins County, named in honor of Daniel Tompkins, who did have an illustrious uh, government uh, career. And as a matter of fact, uh, Cornell University is in Tompkins County, where Ithaca is. Now here's our uh, another bonus question. Will DeWitt Clinton become the primary pivotal figure in spearheading all efforts to go about seeing through that Erie Canal got constructed? It's an absolute definitive answer right there. Yes. He wasn't afraid to risk his image on the future, not just for New York State, but the future for America. Given what was at stake being our nation's ability to link the transportation, or let alone the transporting of goods from the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes and beyond. I will tell you this right now that, um, I could say this right now, there were some who, um, viewed Clinton's uh, proposals behind constructing the canal as a folly, meaning a disaster. There are some other uh, titles that I've come upon that I'll share later on, but there were many people, folks, who simply just said that this project was going to be a waste of money. It wouldn't benefit the nation as a whole. It might only benefit those who live up north, but as for those who live down south, say in Savannah, Georgia, or Charleston, South Carolina... How is a canal system up north going to benefit them? So this is where, you know, we also can say, you know, it's not bad to look at the pros and cons. And, of course, even in modern-day times, there are pieces of legislation introduced that only benefit, say, a certain part of the country, but yet politicians still have to vote on it as a whole because even if it may not impact the, impact the areas that they represent, they still have to think about what's best for the nation as a whole. And see here again, folks, even if you don't live up north, if you live down south, you do have to think about what's best for the nation as a whole because how is, how is the United States going to be viewed one day as a world superpower when uh, here we are trying to uh, lay a foundation for what can um, be attainable after all, folks, you know, in 1817, when the canal finally gets constructed, we've just emerged from a war, being the War of 1812, that, um, that almost um, made the United States a country that no longer existed. The British wanted to um, pretty much force us back into submission. And if those of you who uh, were a part of my uh, podcast discussion through the perilous fight 
uh, from the burning of Washington, uh, the Star Spangled Banner, and the six weeks that saved the nation. That that war um, was a very, very, um, how do I say it, not so much a dark chapter, but the burning of Washington alone was a dark chapter to where we finally had to realize that we could no longer rely on militias to uh, put down an enemy, especially being an enemy from overseas. But we also had to come to the realization that in order to be a better um, country that had better defensive systems, we needed to um, do a better job of um, building an army, a navy, so if you need to have if you want to have a good army and a good navy, what else do you think you might need to have to be a perhaps a better respected country? A better system of getting goods to um places further inland rather than transporting goods from from uh, point A to point B across the Atlantic Ocean. True or false? Would there be enough support from Congress, and let alone the federal government, to finance construction. I hate to tell you this, folks, but false. There was a lot of opposition from the federal level. And that's a real, um, that's a real um, bitter pill to swallow, especially if you are Governor DeWitt Clinton, if you are the New York State Legislature, let alone if you're a a congressional politician from New York trying to convince everyone else that, hey, we can make this happen. The further we hold back, the greater the delays, and not only in progress, but the greater the delay in our stepping up from being a lower-tier country to becoming perhaps a second-tier nation. And one day, years from now, a superpower... So, given how much opposition there was from the federal level, what does the state of New York do? You talk about a brilliant um, move. The state of New York goes about financing the Erie Canal project through selling its own bonds to the public, including the same for foreign markets. Now, the foreign market part might seem a little uh, sketchy because... um, because think about it, this is a um, a, a project that's um, that's going to that would yes benefit the United States, but why foreign markets? Think about it, folks. If you've got ships coming in from England or France, Spain, and they're coming to New York, well, what's going to be to their advantage? Well, the canal, folks, will link New York City which is on the Hudson River, all the way up into New York State, into Albany, and then go westward on to its final destination. And that's going to be mentioned quite a bit. But that's why having foreign markets be involved in, the, uh, in New York State's selling its own bonds, it's, it's, going to, it's going to mean not just a national interest, but an international interest. So in 1817, Governor DeWitt Clinton did receive approval from the state legislature for $7 million for construction. That's how much it cost to build the Erie Canal, $7 million. That was a lot of money in its time. I did find out through Wikipedia 
I know, I'm, I, I shouldn't be cheating, but hey, Wikipedia is good uh, for backup information. In today's modern time, if something did, if, if in modern day times, if we were to build the Erie Canal, say in the 21st century, it would cost well over $100 million. So think about it, folks. In 1817, $7 million was a lot of money for its time uh, to build, uh, a pro to go about constructing a project like this. But in today's time, it would be... Um, far more astronomical to cost. Uh, not to get off track, but I'll use another good example in terms of how everything is relevant to its time. When the famous ship, the Titanic, was being constructed, it only cost uh, $10 million to build her. In today's time, she probably would have cost somewhere over $100 million. So anyways, uh, as for Governor DeWitt Clinton, he get, he does get the $7 million approval from the state legislature to go about uh, constructing the canal. And the good news is that the flow of money collected on the canal allowed New York State to repay the bonds ahead of schedule. So this truly was a very, very shrewd move on the state's part to go about doing this alone and proving to Congress that, hey, if you guys aren't going to help us, we can still find a way to do it on our own and still come away over time with, a, with an engineering marvel that is going to revolutionize how we go about getting goods transported um, once they arrive into America, but into markets that are uh, west of us. West of us being not just so much western New York, but Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, and on westward into Illinois and Wisconsin. Now, in 1817, who was uh, president of the United States? And, it turned, and of course, when uh, this president was sworn in in 1817, it was also, of course, the same year that the canal first begins construction. That answer is James Monroe, fifth president of the United States. But remember, folks, four of the first five presidents came from Virginia. James Monroe himself would be a very ardent supporter behind internal improvement projects. When you think of internal improvement projects, what do we think about? Building roads, building bridges, along with building something revolutionary when it comes to transporting goods, canals. James Monroe knows that in order for the United States to compete with other countries, we're going to have to do a lot of internal improvements. Because prior to um, the American Revolution and, and around the American, time of the American Revolution and even afterwards, our roads are not the best. And, and, and if it rained, you wouldn't even think of traveling on a road knowing that your horse and buggy would have gotten stuck. Um, and who knows what else might happen. So the, usually the best way to get from point A to point B, if you had access to it, was by ferry boat or, water, or, or, or just by boat itself. And how true that is. And of course I should point out that um, Daniel Tompkins, who was, um, who was an opponent of the uh, Erie Canal, a matter of fact, Daniel Tompkins was, in fact, James Monroe's vice president. So, 
interesting uh, twist of fate right there, but nonetheless, uh, Daniel Tompkins, um, not saying he was a bad fella by no means, and of course he may have been, may have had his rights to not be in support of the canal, but uh, I just find that to be very interesting that uh, James Monroe has a, um, had a, his vice president was from up north, and yet he turned out to be one who was a, an opponent to the canal. But who's to say that probably, um, and of course we'll learn more about him in this book, but who knows, maybe his views could have changed over time with the canal. And I should point out too that James Monroe's presidency was one that was referred to as the era of good feelings. And of course building the Erie Canal would have been a good example of that heading of the era of good feelings. Now, before the Erie Canal uh, construction got underway, road conditions were already unpleasant. Now, I want us to think about this. How long by road might it have taken to get from New, from New York to destinations like Cleveland, Ohio, and Detroit, Michigan? Well, from New York to Cleveland, prior to the Erie Canal being constructed, it took two and a half weeks, roughly 460 miles. And remember, folks, in this day and time in the early 19th century and even before, you would be lucky if you could get somewhere from point A to point B 10 miles in one day without having anything go wrong. Remember, most people didn't venture out, say, 50 miles or more. You'd be lucky if, depending on where your, what your status was in society, you might have only ventured out 10 or 20 miles at best. Think about it. We have no interstate highways at this time. That's that's a, that's another foreign thing for its time. But think about it. Before the Erie Canal is built, it's going to take about two and a half weeks from New York to De to uh, Cleveland, Ohio. As for Detroit, Michigan, it, it's going to take four weeks from New York to Detroit, roughly 612 miles. So, yes, we do need something to improve how we're going to get not only person-wise from point A to point B, but how we can get goods um, to their destinations a lot faster because four, two and a half weeks to four weeks is just way too much time. And I will admit this too, folks. And actually, we will find that, um, matter of fact, I'll just tell you all this right now. Once the Erie Canal fully opened, movement via boats, because remember, folks, Boats are the ones that are, that are the driving forces behind the Erie Canal. Once the canal is fully opened, boats, the movement of boats expands rapidly to where agricultural products from the west, and we're talking like western New York, like Buffalo, and as a matter of fact, Buffalo would become uh, one of the um, top five or top ten cities for uh, grain exports. So when we talk about, say, um, from the West, we're in this case we're we're going to talk we're going to say Buffalo, New York. So agricultural products from the West venturing east into the Atlantic, you know, going east, say, all the way to New York City to go to a foreign market overseas. Whereas manufactured goods, along with immigrants and pioneers, venturing westward in into new lands. So in other words, it's a trade-off, folks. Okay, the agricultural products from the West are going east into the Atlantic, manufactured goods along with immigrants. And think about this, folks. You know, immigrants can move by um, what are called, and I'll mention these types of boats in 
many other podcasts called Packet Boats. Packet Boats were designed to uh, transport immigrants along the Erie Canal to new uh, to cities, most notably like Buffalo, Rochester, even Syracuse, Albany, and even perhaps as far west as into present-day Ohio. So it's not just goods that are being moved. We're talking about immigrants. And think about this. They have a plate they can move by boat to get to their new destination to start a new life in the new world. Or let alone, I should say, in America at this time, which is now being really considered the land of opportunity. So the Erie Canal basically is going to drastically reduce transportation costs, which were far higher by road versus waterway. So, like, for here's another good example. Pre-Erie Canal waterway, um, that is, like, you know, before the waterway itself is built, say, from Albany to Buffalo by stagecoach, how many weeks is that going to take? Two. Think about it. Now, with the when the canal gets built from Albany to Buffalo, that's going to be you know, for origin to destination is going to be well than uh, well beyond less than two weeks. So it does pay to um, do something that's, um, you know, far different. And while, yes, you're going to have those who will remain skeptical about it, I can tell you this much, folks. If you're that, you know, if you want to reduce your costs and not have to rely on getting goods by land, you're going to do whatever it takes to uh, find a faster route. And I think it's fair to say that that the construction of the Erie Canal is that answer. Here's another bonus question, and I think this is one that might knock a lot of people's socks off. Was the Erie Canal designed by surveyors or civil engineers? I would have thought civil engineers. You know, when I think of, you know, bridges and buildings and, you know, canals, I think of engineers. It turns out that surveyors were the ones who uh, built the Erie, who uh, designed the canal. Why not civil engineers? It turns out that there were no civil engineers in the United States at the time the canal was built. And we're going to learn more about the men who laid out the construction in other uh, podcasts, but I'll name a few of the men here. James Geddes, Benjamin Wright, to Canvas White. All of these men worked closely under Governor DeWitt Clinton. Uh, matter of fact, Canvas White went to uh, England to, dis- to study about canals. So it's not like these men just woke up one morning and said, well, you know what, we do have our surveying experience, so let's just go out here and um, you know look at this land that's around us, and I think we can decide for ourselves how to go about constructing a canal. Now, I will say this, uh, that doesn't mean, though, that engineers weren't involved, but there were no civil engineers. The Erie, uh, I should point out here this, too, that the Erie Canal's success, there were so many things success-wise, but I'm but I'm laying the foundation for you guys here in, the, in this introduction because we do we do have to learn more about why the canal got su- so successful. But it wasn't the success didn't happen overnight. Uh, the construction alone also didn't happen overnight. But the Erie Canal's success eventually over time did give New York the title of Empire State. 
You know, you see on um, New York's uh, state license plates, the Empire State, it's all in the name of the, of the Erie Canal's construction. The canal, the success of the canal also gave New York City many unique titles, being perhaps the greatest city in the United States, also to becoming the International Trade Center. The canal itself also established economic might, along with having um, numerous canal counties in, the, uh, in western New York, uh, or uh, the canal counties, let alone in general in New York, become leaders in the number of patents issued in the U.S. on a yearly basis. Now, um, many of you all are wondering, what counties in New York State would um, have been in that uh, beltway for the canal? Well, Erie County, where Buffalo is, Niagara County, where Niagara Falls, uh, there's um, uh, Orleans County, which is next door to Niagara, then there's uh, Wayne County, uh, which is right along Lake Ontario. Matter of fact, my wife and I have been to uh, Wayne County when we were in the Finger Lakes four years ago. We uh, ventured into uh, Sodus Point, uh, and then there's a place right on Lake Ontario known as Chimney Bluffs, and that is a incredible uh, site being 350 feet above Lake Ontario. So those are just a few, uh, and then there's Genesee County and uh, Monroe County uh, where the Erie Canal goes through. Those are just some of the many counties uh, that the Erie Canal had its uh, significant influence by. Now the canal itself would um, lower the cost of shipping between the Midwest and the Northeast. It helped unite the country at a time when it needed to be united, especially in the aftermath of the War of 1812, James Monroe becoming president, and what we would eventually know as the era of good feelings. And yes, the canal was seen as an engineering marvel, but the most important thing I can tell you all is this. The canal itself brought the East and the West together commercially to where the United States would no longer be seen as a lower tier, or I should say an inferior nation. So that is why the Erie Canal was so essential. It wasn't so much for national security purposes, it was for economic security. It was a way to prove not just that, oh, look at us, we just constructed this canal. It was a way to say, hey, we know of how to go about being self-sufficient. We know how to go about bringing um, outsiders in who want to do business with the United States in terms of international, you know, foreign countries, bringing goods not just over into New York, but to bring goods that would go to other parts of the nation that had not been touched before, and also transporting immigrants to start that new life in America. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to uh, being on the air again like I always do, uh, but I know that you all are going to really enjoy a Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal and the Making of a Great Nation by Peter Bernstein. And when we're back on the air again next, we're going to be discussing the visionaries. And that's also going to include talking about the history behind canals. Because after all, folks, canals have been around since the beginning of time. Take care and have a good evening and Happy New Year.